Welcome to the Press Row. Behind the scenes stories from the world of sports media. Press Row. Inside and interviews from around the sports world. Now here's your host, Jonah Siegel. Jonah on the Press Row here. Welcome back. Happy to have you as always. Taking a bit of a break from the sports side while we do do a little bit of baseball, also doing some entertainment stuff, which you know is big love of mine. Joined by one of my favorite people, Adnan Verk, Canadian, living in the U.S. And we talk about some baseball stuff, but we also spend quite a bit of time talking about entertainment, movies, TV shows, which I hope you will enjoy as much as I had enjoyed having him on the show today. So sit back, relax, enjoy Adnan Verk in the press row. This is the Press Row with Jonas Eagle. Welcome back in the press row, Jonas Siegel. And I am thrilled to have one of my most favorite people joining me. Uh, he's taken his private jet in from the beach to join us on a <laughs> Sunday afternoon. Uh, Adnan Verk from MLB Network. How are you, man? I'm doing great, Jonah. Normally when people say one of my most favorite people, I'd immediately be suspicious and say, okay, they're just trying to placate my massive ego. But in your case, it's actually true. You have written very kind things about me. You've been very supportive of me. Uh, we've talked previously in your pod. So I, I thank you very humbly and very sincerely for the kind words. Well, the good news is you're one of the few people that I can, I can engage with in social media. And I give my opinion on TV shows and movies. And you go, <laughs> oh, that's actually pretty interesting. You're not a total <laughs> schmuck. <laughs> that's the problem so much with social media. It's it's either or. So it's I love it. I hate it. There's, there's no room for nuance. So I always what? think it's interesting if you say something like, oh, OK, you know what? Ozark doesn't necessarily work for me. But when you phrase it that way, I can see why you find it appealing. That, but that, that, that's a rarity. But that's because you're not the angry man. You see, yeah. so much of social media, especially Twitter, is the angry man. And yeah. thankfully, you're not the angry man. So, <laughs> you know, like we can we can differ on opinions and be and still res, be respectful and like each other right like so i'm going to say something that adnan I, I i watch almost everything we're going to talk about that in a minute like yeah. i i consume most content i subscribe to almost every streaming service i watch everything yeah. and i will admit that coming into covid i had not yet watched the sopranos He's oh. not going to, uh, you know, this already. Yeah. So, so I've watched it and fell in love all over again. Yeah. And then I don't know if we actually call it a movie because of COVID, but that thing came out that you actually went to the premiere of. <laughs> Let's say the after party was better than the movie, but go ahead. It sucked, right? <laughs> like <laughs> it was that up there with that Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, John Candy movie. Called oh, nothing, nothing but, but trouble. trouble. Oh yeah, that's off. That, that is one of the all-time worst. It was that like it was like Ishtar, Ishtar too, right? Geely. Yeah, there's, right, right. There's a few that always come to hand. Waterworld, right, man. Yeah. Um, the movie was really bad, um, but you know we can agree on things like that, and we can have differing opinions. So, yeah. anyways, that, that's why I like Adnan is that first of all he's another one who consumes almost everything, and yeah. he, but he is very respectful. So. You live your you live your life these days in the world of Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. I do have one. I have a couple of questions for you. First off, you know, the Yankees are on fire. Yeah. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it is what good it thing. is. Good thing. Do you think that um, 
I just sounded like Jiminy Glick when I said that, um, which is definitely you not. Think that, right. I love Martin Short. He's so great. <laughs> have you ever noticed? No. Um, a lot of teams have slow starts, the Yankees notwithstanding. Do you think in your expert opinion that they start the season too early? Like, is it these guys have a tough time out of the gate and that I don't know if it's, is it so much the spring training is condensed or the season's just too damn early and they need to start it a month later and, and just chop off the first 20 games. It's interesting when the lockout was progressing, there was this thought process to be like, Hey, you know what? What's the worst thing in the world if it starts at May 1st. But of course, if you're a baseball fan, you always appreciate the 162. And the whole point is that you can compare players of different eras because it's the same amount of games. So, you know, if all of a sudden they played 140 starting May 1st, you'd all of a sudden have to extrapolate, oh, he's on pace to beat Roger Maris's record if it was 162. So I think what baseball really holds sacred and sacrosanct is the fact that you play 162, it is a long season, it's a war of attrition, et cetera. And to your point, for some of it's too long in today's world, you, you know what? 162, that's fine. You don't have to watch all 162. You can watch 50. You can watch 80. You can watch 100. You know, most baseball fans I know, they kind of just dovetail in and out. One of the great aspects of baseball is that it's always there. It's reliable. And if you want to watch a whole nine-inning game, great. If you want to watch a few innings and kind of duck in and out, that's fine. Specific to this year, though, offense has really been struggling out of the gate. And I think that's completely related to the fact they have that condensed spring training. Generally speaking, the pitchers are always at an advantage. In April baseball, the weather's cold. You know, if you're in the Midwest, I mean, it's just some miserable games there in Detroit or Cleveland. So the pitchers finally generally have a better feel for the ball. And the hitters, it just takes them a while to get going. You know, pitching is everything about upsetting timing. And hitting is about having the right timing. And I think specifically this year, the fact that we didn't get a deal until late, the fact it was only a four-week spring training, pitchers had a decided advantage. And the hitters did not. And that's played out now so far. Offense has been down, generally speaking, especially batting average. That continues to tramp in the last few years. But home runs are still robust. You know, you see a lot of this in these players' approaches, the fact they just hit home runs rather than try to, you know, squeak out a base hit. I don't think that's necessarily a great thing for the game. I think offense does help sell the game. But ultimately, I would say the reason why to your question is because of the condensed spring training. I think it's hurt those players. Do you think that the deal that they signed to get back on track was it step one or was it good enough? Like, does more need to happen to fix things or was this this step one? No, absolutely step one. Because if you look at the sport, you'd say it's a great sport. It's a sport I will always love and appreciate, but it's a sport in need of repair. There's no question about it, that the sport has been better in the past and that you can improve things. So I think when it came to the lockout, we said, well, it's all about one thing, which is economics and splitting up this piece of the pie. And there's, it's undeniable that baseball is healthy. It's a $10 billion revenue. So clearly people watch and love baseball, but it does not have the same national appeal that it once did. It's a very much a regionalized sport. I live in North Jersey here. A lot of Yankees fans, a lot of Mets fans, they tune into all those games. But if I tell them there's a great you know, matchup between the Dodgers and Padres, they're not as inclined to watch. Whereas in football, of course, everybody will. No matter what football, hey, they're going to watch it. So that's been a challenge for baseball the last few years. But the reason why I'm encouraged is, they got the deal done and they had to get it done. I mean, for all the criticism baseball takes over labor stoppages, you know, the NFL, since baseball had, had a lockout back in 95, NFL's had a lockout, hockey said two, the NBA's had two. This was baseball's first in 27 years. It's actually been really well done in terms of labor peace. And even with the deal getting done late, no games were missed, which again, if you asked a casual baseball fan, 
all winter they're watching football or hockey or basketball, March Madness. Oh, baseball is back. Great. So I do think baseball gets credit for getting things done at the right amount of time. But to your point, I'm most encouraged for what happens next year. And we finally get rid of the shift. And I used to say, how could you ban the shift? The shift is born out of intelligence. Somebody said, when Jonah's up, he always hits it to the right side. Let's put three guys on that side. And that's been going back all the way to Ted Williams and the Williams shift. How would you curtail someone's intelligence? That makes no sense. But the more you watch baseball, you'd say, this is ridiculous. There's way too many players being robbed of hits. And you can make an example in a correlation to basketball and how illegal defense was created. And the fact that you've adapted rules in other sports. Everybody grows up playing baseball a certain way. And yet the majors, all of a sudden, you've got four outfielders the Blue Jays have employed, you know, three guys on either side of the bag. It's just not fun to watch. It, it, it's an intelligent game, but it robs the game of entertainment value. So I'm thrilled next year. No more shift. Also, the big one is the pitch clock. You and I have kids. You and I know what it's like in today's world. People are on their phones. Go, go, go. Bam, bam, bam. Baseball at its heart is a pastoral game. You got to move quicker. And the difference between, as we've seen in the minor leagues right now, the average length of a baseball game right now is three hours and eight minutes. In the minor leagues, with a pitch clock installed, it's two hours and 45 minutes. That is a lifetime of difference. A football game is over three hours. Basketball is two and a hook. Hockey, 235. If you could get baseball at 240, 245, I'm telling you right now, Jonah, I'm not saying all of a sudden the masses would flock to watch Major League Baseball, but those watching would notice the difference and appreciate it. And I think the pace of play, along with banning the shift, will make for a much better game next year. All right, so I'm going to say something controversial. So take a deep breath and let me finish my thought. So I think it was Jimmy the Greeker, Howard Cosell, who made that ridiculously racist comment about players being bred. Uh, I think it was one of those two guys about running backs being bred, but, but stick with me for a second. Okay. When you and I were growing up and I think we're roughly the same age, you know, the guys who we watched pitch starting pictures, if they didn't go seven, eight, nine innings, we were disappointed. Yes. Now, Pitchers are being, for lack of a better word, rewarded. That's like a reliever comes in, you know, pitcher, if they can go five or six, that's awesome. And then the reliever comes in, those guys are all throwing hundred miles an hour. Do you think that is, is like their specialties are pitching hundred miles an hour in short bites? Yeah. So is that a good, like, is that a good advancement to the game or is that a bad thing? Again, it makes you appreciate the power of the pitching, but I, like you, miss the days of the starting pitcher going seven innings. If you asked me my favorite World Series, you would think I'd be biased and say 92 and 93 because of Toronto, but it's 91. And part of that is that game seven, John Smoltz and Jack Morris going toe-to-toe, the fact that Morris pitched 10 innings. It's amazing. And again, the intelligent approach is don't let the starting pitcher face the lineup a third time because the numbers demonstrably go down. But... As a baseball fan, it's fun to see that third matchup. Okay, let's see what happens now when Otani faces Vlad Jr. for the third time. Baseball is built on these matchups. It's a team sport, but it's individualized matchups. This past Thursday, I called the Yankee game. Yankees-Angels. Jamison Tyon on the mound. Both his parents are Canadian. He was born in Lakeland, Florida. Believe me, near Cornwall, Ontario, his parents are from. He's pitching this game, and I asked Aaron Boone, who I know from my days at ESPN, you know, what's the plan for Tyon? Five or six, because as you said, that's the plan now. Al Leiter said to me, we used to make fun of those guys. Five and dive, that's the expression. Now, yeah, give me five. And Booty looked at me and goes, oh, no, I hope he pitches nine. Like, let's go. 
And Jamison Tyone had a perfect game through seven innings. You know, his previous high for pitches in a game this year was 94. And his career was 117. That was back in 2017 before he had Tommy John surgery, which he's had twice. He ends up losing the perfect game and the no-hitter and the shutout. But the Yankees rallied because Anthony Rizzo came up in the bottom of the eighth to pinch it, et cetera. But part of the drama and the greatness of that game was seeing a starting pitcher work and adapt and overcome and adjust. And I'm with you. I, I don't really like when I see a guy go four or five innings and then an army of relievers throw gas. I appreciate heat and velocity. So a part of me can appreciate, you know, the Royals back in the day, 2015 had an incredible bullpen, the Rays, what their bullpen can do. But again, it adds to the anonymous nature of baseball then, because you're not sure these guys are. It's just a bunch of nameless, faceless relievers who all throw 100. I still like the idea of that classic starting pitcher. So is that you and I being grumpy old men who prefer yesterday? Like, have you talked to people in the game who say, Adnan, you're wrong. Like, this is the right way to do it. Or is it rather win at all expenses and that's the way you win today? It's generally that. They'll, they'll, they will argue that if that's the better way to win, then why wouldn't you do that? But they will concede it is not as visually appealing not seeing a starter go deep in a game. That there is something to be said for why it was fun watching Dave Steve throw his slider into the eighth inning. And you want to see a guy pitch a no-hitter and Clayton Kershaw getting the hook earlier this year despite the fact he was pitching a, a no-hitter. So... Again, it's that battle between a head and a heart. Yes, it's more fun seeing a starter go deep, but the data and the research indicates more relievers, the better. You know, in the past, a hitter would say, we've got to get into their bullpen. And now a hitter says, why would we want to do that? Their bullpen's ridiculous. Like almost every bullpen has guys throwing gas. So I think, unfortunately, it's you and I clinging to nostalgia rather than accepting the way that works. But what I do think is those starting pitchers who can show the ability to go deep will always be rewarded. That's why Max Scherzer got a three-year, $43 million a year contract. Because there is a guy who will fight you if you take him out of the game for five innings. I'm going seven every single time. So there's still a premium placed on those elite starting pitchers. So, so thank you for pivoting to money because that's where my brain was going, my favorite mm -hmm. topic. <laughs> the Blue Jays have a wealth, pun intended, of young talent whose agents are all drooling at the prospect of digging into Edward Jr.'s pockets. <laughs> First question, I know the answer to this one. Should they be signing all of these guys? The second question is, can they? Yes, they should, which is, as you know, the answer to your first question. I don't know if they can. I remember years ago, J.P. Ricciardi, who I interviewed a few times at the score, he comes to ESPN where he was working a little bit and I was working at ESPN. He did recognize my face. I go, hey, how are you going to see it? And the first thing I said out of my mouth was like, hey, what were you thinking of that Vernon Wells contract? And he kind of gave a laugh. And I said, no, seriously. I said, you know, I, I love Vernon Wells. He's a great player. But I'm like, you gave him that contract. He goes, listen, you know this as well as I do, having been in Toronto. Rogers, if they want to spend, they can spend. They could be the New York Yankees. You and I both know that, how strong Rogers is with their economic muscle in Canada. So with a guy like Vernon Wells, he had a 330 home run, 100 RBI season. I felt it was important to pony up to show loyalty to this guy, bring other free agents there. Unfortunately, the contract did not work out. But JP's overriding point is this. If they wanted to spend and be the Yankees, they could. And right now it's the Dodgers. The Dodgers' payroll is $311 million. You know, the Red Sox is 240. The Dodgers, there's 60 million more than the Red Sox. And the Yankees are around 250. It's, it's insane how much LA is spending. But Toronto could do it. But let's now look at the math. Vlad Jr. is having a good but not great season. 
Last year, he was sensational. Had his big breakthrough, if not for Otani, be the MVP. He's probably looking at Machado money. 10 years, $300 million. That's could argue be Bryce Harper money, 330 million, et cetera. I would think that's the number. Maybe we get lucky. Maybe it's 10 years, 250. Maybe, but I think it's 300. And I think Bo Bichette, again, he wants big money. He's looking at eight to 10 years. It's north of 200. I don't think it's as big as Vlad, but I think it's 10 years, 250 or eight years, 200. So you got to take a big, deep breath and say, I'm going to commit a half a billion dollars to two players. Now, again, it probably makes sense to do it now rather than as they get older and they hit arbitration, they become even more expensive. And a few years from now, they hit the open market and they might get a $400 million contract. Generally speaking, it is wise to sign your own and it's a little bit more team-friendly than you might think. But what we should also remember is this Blue Jays team was thought to be, this is now, this is the time to go. And until this recent hot streak, which has been great to see, they were a little disappointing. You know, the Yankees are running away with this division. The Rays and Jays are hanging tough. The Red Sox appear to be a disappointment. But Toronto, at least early on, felt like they were reading too many of their own headlines. If these guys all felt the time is now, and they were performing up to expectations, particularly their offense. So the answer is, ultimately, if I was the Jays, yes, I would pony up, and I would sign Vlad, and I'd sign Bo. And the other guys, I'd wait and see. Kevin Bichio's been up and down. I'd wait and see Lourdes Gurriel, Tasker, eh, whatever. Chapman's been a disappointment so far. But those two guys, they have to be our cornerstones, and I'd pay. But are they absolute no-doubters? No. I love Fernando Tatis. I think he's a sublime player. And yet he signed a $340 million contract with the Padres. He's hurt 30% of the time. 70% of the time he plays like an MVP. But 30% of the time he's hurt. Now, Bo and Vlad have been healthy so far. But any contract with that kind of gargantuan money and that many years has a lot of risk. Can they afford not to sign them? Because their ability to pack the dome their ability to get TV numbers, whatever radio looks like, is dramatically higher. We all saw when they were in sniffing around the playoffs, you know, come August, September, October, that place was, you know, 40 plus a night. That, that pays for itself, right? You know yeah. the numbers better than me. No doubt about it, which is why, on a side note, the fact that the Yankees didn't sign Aaron Judge is shocking because everyone knows it's not just the production of the field, of which Judge has been amazing, but it's all the other money. You mentioned the ratings and putting butts in the seats and merchandise and jerseys, all the rest of it. In this instance, the Yankees then, then disclosed how much they were offering Judge, which he turned down seven years, $213 million, $30 million a year. And I can't imagine that's a wise strategy to tell everybody what the number was that your guy turned down because it makes him look selfish. And if I'm Aaron Judge, I say, okay, that's $30 million a year is outstanding. I'm 30 years old and I get that, but you're paying Garrett Cole 35 million a year and Stanton's getting 35 million a year. So I want those guys are getting, I want 35 million a year times seven, do the math. We're good. So your point with Vlad Jr. And Bo Bichette, Toronto, the last few years has proven once again, that they cannot be underappreciated as a baseball city. I saw some of the TV numbers and I blew my mind. How many people are watching spring training this year? Now, again, this is a team on the rise but yet to do anything of note. They did not make the playoffs last year. They were thought to make the playoffs. They didn't. They closed fast, but they made some good moves in the offseason. They signed Gossman, who's a stud. They trained for Chapman, who's excellent defensively, been disappointing offensively. And they signed Barrios to a long-term deal. The fact that, and I explained to the people that I work with at MLB Network, I said, you know, they're getting 
over a million and a half people watching regular season April baseball. I said, oh, okay. I said, it's a country of 35 million. Like, you do realize how nuts those numbers are. Like, imagine if the Twins are getting 10 million people watching them in the state of Minnesota. It's crazy. So I do think ultimately you're right. If you crunch the numbers and you said Vlad Jr.'s production is going to be this, 32 home runs, 96 RBIs, and they hit 280 over the course of 10 years. And Boba Shett's numbers are going to be this. Their OPS is this. Their war is this. But look at how much they're going to sell when it comes to the tickets and the merchandise, et cetera. With those two guys, you can make so much money. And I think that's the important thing to recognize. Toronto does realize it's more than just the production on the field. It's what they bring off the field. So let's pivot. You, you spend a good chunk of your time in my other favorite world, and that's the entertainment world. And uh, all joking aside, I'll tell you, like Top Gun 1 or Top Gun came out in 1986. I, I didn't love it then. Um, I thought it was good. It was fun. But it was a stereotypical mid-80s entertaining I don't know, action movie. I never thought Tom Cruise was that great of an actor. He was fantastic in Risky Business. Hmm. You know, he was great in Jerry Maguire. I, I don't think he's ever been a, a fantastic guy. He was good in Rain Man. I'll give yeah. him that. I think uh, he's had some good performances with A-list directors and good scripts, but I'm with you. I don't think he's a great actor. He's a movie star, but he's not a great actor. And I, I will say that maybe it's COVID, maybe it's being cooped up, but I saw Maverick uh, opening night. It's the first time I've been in a movie theater in years <laughs> where at the end of the movie, there was a standing ovation and park the reality and this could never happen and yada, yada, yada. It was just good, unadulterated fun. And I think they did a fantastic job. Um, best movie I've ever seen. No, but it was just good fun. And I hope it, it restored the faith in me mm. that there is a reason to go to a theater and eat popcorn and go see a movie. And that's the best news of it. The fact that the Memorial day records, I think it was $158 million. Like it's that's made, it's already surpassed 200 million. Right. Like that's remarkable numbers. As you said, as we're still dealing with COVID, but the pandemic is not over, but I think the biggest lesson in all of this is exactly what you hit on. People have been cooped up for years. Television has never been better, which you and I have talked about. There's so much good stuff available on all these different streaming services. There's less reason to go to the movie theater, to get a babysitter, to get out of the house, to make that time commitment. But this was one movie where everyone felt committed to going to see. It's the start of the summer movie season, which generally is when Hollywood makes its money. It is a very popular film. It was the number one film back in 1986. Tom Cruise despite the fact I think he's loathsome because of his devotion to Scientology. And I wish everyone watching Top Gun Maverick would also watch Going Clear, which is an incredible documentary by Alex Gibney. It's about Scientology. It's available on HBO. That documentary shows that Cruz is basically the figurehead of Scientology. David Miscavige is in charge, but Cruz is the guy who's you know, responsible for this noxious cult, which abuses and harms and irreparably damages people. And even with Top Gun getting these crazy headlines, good old Leah Remini's out there tweeting, going, hey, don't forget what Tom Cruise is all about. Alex Gibney as well, the director's saying this as well. So I think it's a fascinating situation. I think people like yourself said, man, I got to go to the movies. I can't wait to the movies. Hey, this is a big, fun action movie. It's a summer film. Yeah, the story is nothing special. It's steeped in nostalgia and weary resentment. Yeah, Cruise's face looks tighter than a bow and arrow. His hair is still somehow jet black. But 
I am touched and moved by the scene with Val Kilmer. It's got good action sequences. But the story, again, I don't think is, if somebody asked what you think of the movie, it's, it's perfectly adequate. It's the student becomes the teacher. He's now teaching this young group of people. And of course, he's still dealing with the guilt of Goose's death. And how do we know that Miles Teller is Goose's kid? Because he has a mustache. Well, that is just terrific character development. We've got a mustache just like his dad. He's resentful of him. But I understand the fact. No one's going to the film expecting to be challenged. They want to see a big, fun movie. And it delivers in that aspect. And I think the word you use is the right term, restoring your faith in going to the movies. That's the best thing that can be said of Top Gun Maverick. It is not going to win Best Picture, nor should it. It's not going to be on my year-end top 10 list. And Tom Cruise, I hope, goes away sooner rather than later because I'm tired of him and what he stands for. But the movie put people back in the theaters, and that is undeniable. And as a movie lover and as a movie fan, that was nice to see. Every once in a while, we do need an escape. Right. And not everything's headline news and not everything is bad news. And for two hours and 24 minutes or whatever the hell it was, <laughs> it, it was an escape. And then I was walking my dog the other day and I listened to the Wall Street Journal awesome podcast that comes out every day. And, and listeners, watchers, I, I cannot record, like, I don't know if you read the journal or watch it or what have you, but their daily podcast, I'm going to put the link in, in the show. Uh, it's really good. And, and you can, the beauty of podcasts is you can pick and choose the episodes that appeal to you. But, but this episode on uh, the movie Maverick is really, really good. I sent it to Adnan in advance. Um, it talks about the issue of China in Hollywood. And I will tell you, Adnan, it, it really disturbed me. Um, as you may remember, I, I, I spent a tour at Starbucks running entertainment for them. And at the time we worked with Steven Spielberg as he was launching Lincoln. And, and I could not believe that Spielberg told us in a, like a Yahoo movie, one of these before Zoom, how much trouble he had getting Lincoln financed. And he was lamenting way back then that if you weren't launching a superhero movie, hmm. because it wouldn't sell overseas, it was very hard to fund movies. And basically what they say in this podcast without ruining it is, you know, the Chinese market is so important to the launch of movies that you have to be careful to the point that the editor of the Wall Street Journal for entertainment was fully focused on the back of Tom Cruise's jacket to see whether there was a Japanese and Korean flag on the back of the jacket, because if there were, they wouldn't be able to carry the movie in China. And to think that that level of detail and control is going on in Hollywood, I found deeply depressing. Amen. And especially a film like Tape Top Gun, which is an ode to jingoistic excess. Like the original film, as you said, I, I liked it when I saw it. I was also eight years old. I wasn't watching it with a, with a jaded, cynical eye. I mean, essentially, this is a movie about a bunch of young, cocky guys and flying planes looking cool and a bunch of babes on the beach and Kelly McGillis at the bar and you've lost that love and feeling. Like, All right, great. Like, I can't think of anything more a slice of Americana than Top Gun. And you think the Chinese, who their government clearly is at odds with ours and does not have the same morals, ideals, principles, the fact that they are having influence over the stars and stripes of this movie, I am with you. I was stunned by it. And we live in a digital age where I think Little Goose or Junior Goose's mustache <laughs> was digitally created. 
you're telling me that for the Chinese version of the movie, they couldn't change the flags on the back of the flipping jacket. And this is what we're talking about. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like I I'm the ignorant Canadian. I'm, I'm in the minority. I don't like that. We have to force Canadian content down the throats of Canadians. I like the cream to float to the top. I like to think that no matter where we are, we want to watch the best content available to us. That's where I come from. But to hear that Michael Eisner had to go over to China and apologize that some movie was made about the Dalai Lama. Yeah. And like that to me is really, really disturbing. Uh, it really bothers me that Hollywood is influenced by outside forces as to what movies are being made because, and maybe I, I'm just too unrealistic and what I expect to be made from content perspective, but I found that very deeply disturbing. Yeah, Kundun's a beautiful film. Martin Scorsese directed it, and Scorsese obviously well-known for his uh, affection and brilliant storytelling when it comes to gangster stories and Goodfellas and the Irishman and Mean Streets and you know dark crime stories, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, et cetera. But Kundun is part of his religious trilogy. He did The Last Temptation of Christ. He did Kundun, and he also did Silence. And with Kundun, he spoke about the fact it was crazy how much influence the Chinese authorities had. He's trying to tell a story about a man of peace. Scorsese is not a Buddhist. He was you know, born an Italian Catholic and he's telling the story about the Dalai Lama. And yet it was kind of like how Spielberg describes Lincoln, arduous to get financing, to get promotion, to get everyone to sign off on it. I mean, if you're Martin Scorsese and you're Steven Spielberg and you can't get your films made, what does that say about the rest of us? And what it ends up showing is that generally the way in the past you could do it, if not circumvent the situation, but have more artistic freedom, was with independent films. You know, say what you will about Harvey Weinstein, but Miramax gave so many of these filmmakers carte blanche to do what they want to make. But unfortunately, what Hollywood's done is either they make a movie for $100 million or $1 million. Either it's superheroes or, you know, sequels or kids' movies, or it's a movie made on a shoestring. And so the films that you and I probably loved growing up, those are now available on streaming. So you have to go watch them on HBO Max or on Hulu or on Netflix. Those independent films that would have stood up to those governments, those bullies, that really has evaporated in a lot of ways, which is also distressing. All right, quick question for you. And then I'll let you go on, on this late Sunday, early Sunday evening where you are, late Sunday afternoon where I am. What are you, uh, what are you binging? What's binge-worthy in your world right now? So The Staircase is currently available on HBO Max. And it's not quite a binge because they're actually holding each episode every week. So in the past, as you know. Right, exactly. <laughs> A true binge means you and I will ignore our kids and be blurry eyed and stuck in the basement trying to cram through eight hours of whatever the episodes are. But in this instance, they gave you a couple to wet your whistle. And now it's once a week you wait for the episode. So it's not truly bingeable, but it is a limited series. And I think that's the big takeaway for me in the world of entertainment. In the past growing up, you'd say there's some big budget films that are really well done. There's some independent films that are risky and, and adventurous. But ultimately now, limited series are so well done. If you tell me there's a really good limited series, I'll say, okay, that's probably the way to go. I don't need 22 episodes the way ER used to be or Chicago Hope. I don't need a two-hour movie necessarily. But you give me a six to eight episode series, whether it's The Night Of on HBO, whether it's um, you know any number of shows people look at now, that's kind of the way to go. So The Staircase stars Colin Firth and... Tony Collette, and it's uh, one of those true crime, true murder stories based on a true story. Did this guy murder his wife or not? And uh, 
I found it compelling so far. My wife and I have really enjoyed it. I find that a lot of these, again, these limited series, they get A-plus talent. It's well-written, well-directed, well-crafted. So we've enjoyed that so far. And then for the kids who are watching Obi-Wan, which again, they are not allowing you to fully binge. It is one episode a week. So they're kind of adjusting the, uh, the full binge we've had in the past. And of course, the show I love, again, non-binge worthy, Better Call Saul. Just six episodes left. I love Bob Odenkirk. I love Ray Seahorn, who I've met before. Her husband's a really nice guy. I met her at a, uh, Critics' Choice Awards. I've had her on my podcast, Cinephile. I just find the richness of Better Call Saul. I, I'm actually a little sad. You're talking about how distressed you are about the Chinese influence of movies. I'm distressed that there's only six more episodes left of Better Call Saul. I think Vince Gilligan is such a talent. So I'm so distressed that I haven't started watching this season. <laughs> I've saved them so I can binge, binge them. them. Yeah. Uh, I just finished season two of Hacks on HBO. Have yeah. you seen Hacks? No, I've heard Gene Smart, right? Is that the yeah. show? With it's it? yeah. I heard she's great. fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and I am suffering and throwing things at the television because Apple TV is releasing season two of Tehran of Tehran in the same manner that you're, you're talking about. Right. Uh, that's what I'm watching right now. But yeah, I'm with you. I have not. A buddy of mine keeps calling me. Have you started watching Saul yet? And I'm like, nope. I want to wait till it's finished so I can watch it in like three nights. Now, how do you find you're able to avoid spoilers? Is that challenging? Because you're on social media. People will tweet afterwards. Oh, my God. Did you see that? How are you able to navigate that? I just try to look away. Um, <laughs> apparent. I don't want you to say something, but he yeah, text, I'm not going to. He texted me the other night. Stay off the stay off of social media, because obviously something big happened. Mm. I'm going to I could guess what happened, but no, I don't yeah, yeah. want to. You don't want to. Um, if you don't know. It's great. I had a friend who was watching in real time. And he texted me 12 exclamation marks. And I wrote back, I'm five minutes behind on the DVR, which again, as parents, you know, we're not watching these things live. We have work with other commitments. So like, don't assume everyone, this is not 1987. We're not all watching family ties together. Thankfully, he just put the exclamation points. I watched it then said, wow, but I'm with you. Try to just keep your head down. Well, I, I've actually read in multiple places that one of the reasons for the downfall of Netflix right now mm. is that we don't have the who shot JR moment and even Ozarks, which ended, which was, I thought, fantastic. Yeah. I was out with someone and someone said to me, did you finish it? And I said, yeah. And before I could make a comment, the third person with us said, don't I'm not anything. there yet. Don't say anything. Okay. And because we don't have that communal moment. Yeah. There is no, the finale's on tonight. Let's all watch it. You don't have the water cooler moment to talk about it. Mm. That has actually hurt us. And that's one of the reasons that networks are going back to these releases to try and create mm. the buzz around it. Adin, it's awesome having you back. You are uh, one of the Canadians who escaped the borders, <laughs> who should be back on Canadian airwaves. Um, we are blessed in our broadcasters, but whether it be on hockey night, whether it be in baseball, um, I don't know if you'd like doing the CFL, but or the Raptors, but I would love to see you back on one of our networks carrying one of our teams because I think you, you've you got it and I think your Canadian roots and I would love to see you doing something with one of the Canadian teams on a national level. And I love chatting with you about the other stuff as well. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, I can't thank you enough for the kind words, Jonah. You had me in hockey in Canada and the baseball, so let's get this done somehow, some way. I'd love to be back in Canada. People laugh, they say, well, 
Mike Myers said this, you can never be more Canadian than when you're not in Canada because you're constantly telling everybody how Canadian you are, where are you from, you're Canada, you're always repping the fact you're Canadian. So uh, trust me, I did not leave because I wanted to leave. I left because there was more opportunities in America. I had a great time at ESPN, now the MLB Network, NHL Network. But I, to be clear, I'm no Benedict Arnold. I am always proudly waving the flag. My friend David Amber sometimes says too much because, you know, you're a little obnoxious with the pro-Canada takes. Americans don't want to hear that. But, uh, of course, that's where my heart always lies. So I'm always patriotic and uh, would always love to be back and not only in the country, but on the airwaves. And um, hopefully one day it'll happen. But I thank you for the time, man. I appreciate our friendship and I appreciate the kind words. Thank you, Dad and Virk, for joining me today in the press row. Thank you for listening. If you want to be a guest in the press row or you are interested in either advertising or appearing, please reach out to me via email at jonah at yyzsportsmedia.com or via Twitter at yyzsportsmedia. Please subscribe on all of your favorite podcasts. And until next time, this is Jonah saying goodbye. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Press Row Podcast. You can subscribe on all your favorite podcast platforms. To contact Jonah or to sponsor the show, email Jonah at torontosportsmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.